If you have your Bibles this morning, open up to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18. Matthew is the first book in your New Testament. Mark is the second. And the chapter numbers are the big numbers. The verse numbers are the little numbers. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a black one in the pew in front of you. Or you can just use the internet. Not to be on Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. <clears throat> have you ever known someone to be overly confident? I don't mean that they kind of came off as overly confident initially. I mean, have you ever known someone to seem like they really knew what they were talking about, only to later find out that their confidence in their own knowledge and in their own skill was actually misplaced? I remember being newly interested in lifting weights, fitness, nutrition, and uh, I wanted to read everything that I could find about it. I wanted to be a bodybuilder. So I started reading the magazines, these bodybuilder magazines. And of course they told me, well, if you want to be like these guys, you need to go and take supplements. So I said, okay. You know, I'll take the powders, the pills, the potions, the goop, the sauce, whatever it is. I'll do it. Well, I had to go to the store to buy that stuff. So I went to GNC. I found a good-looking young guy there who seemed to be in pretty good shape, as most young guys are. He was dressed in his form-fitting T-shirt showing off all of his muscular attributes. And I thought, wow, this guy surely knows a thing or two about a thing or two. I asked him what sort of supplements I should buy if I wanted 20-inch guns with shredded abs. His response, no problem. We got you. Don't worry about it. Come over here. Let me show you what we're working with. He uh, sold me a lot of money worth of supplements that didn't really work. Afterwards, he took the time to chat with me about how I needed to eat a lot of carbohydrates to stay lean, and he even gave me some of his secrets to a good chest and arm workout. You know, I walked out of the GNC that day feeling like I had been blessed by the God of gains. Wow, Trevor, you really blessed me with this information. You really know your stuff. Years later, I came to understand how the fitness industry works and how the supplement industry works and how people like Trevor who work at these stores don't really know anything at all about supplements or diet or nutrition. You know, I had misplaced confidence in Trevor. He was not the subject matter expert that I thought him to be. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe you've even experienced yourself. You thought you were the subject matter expert. You thought you knew for sure that aspartame caused cancer. But then maybe after a little bit more research, you weren't quite sure about that. You thought for sure that flossing was super important until the FDA came out with a report that says maybe it's not that important after all. Well, whether you're considering someone else and their expertise or considering yourself and your supposed expertise, I'm sure you've been in a situation where you thought, man, I or someone else really knows their stuff only to find out later. That was misplaced confidence. Well, enter the Sadducees. These were one of the sects of the Sanhedrin. If you can remember, the Sanhedrin was the, these group of Jewish leaders that ruled from Jerusalem. And Jesus has been in a series of controversies with the Sanhedrin. As a matter of fact, in this section of Mark, there are seven encounters between Jesus and the representatives of the Sanhedrin where they try to attack him, try to bring him down in his ministry. These Sadducees, these were experts in the law. 
They were viewed as masters of the Torah, the Torah being the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But today's encounter with Jesus is going to show us that these Sadducees aren't the experts that everyone thinks that they are. It's going to show us that they're not the experts that even they think that they are. They have misplaced confidence in their interpretation of the Scriptures. And therefore, they fail to have confidence in the God of the Scriptures. So I'm going to read the text, then we'll look at some of the background information, and then we'll dive into the sermon. Let's read, starting Mark chapter 12, verse 18. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Let's pray. Father, the Sadducees were quite wrong. My prayer would be that now as I communicate your word to your people, that it would be quite right. Would you use it to help us to understand you and your power better? Amen. Amen. So let's remember where we are in the book of Mark. Jesus has just arrived in Jerusalem, and he's done so with flair. He got there, started tearing apart the temple, confronting religious leaders. He's stirring the pot. The Sanhedrin is in a frenzy. They've tried to confront him head on, but that didn't work. He made the first few representatives who approached him look foolish. Well, then the book of Luke tells us that they sent out spies. That was the Pharisees and the Herodians from last week. In today's text, the final and most powerful party in the Sanhedrin enters the fray, the Sadducees. The Pharisees had tried to trap Jesus politically, but now the Sadducees are going to try to trap him theologically. The Sadducees were wealthy, they were connected to the priesthood, but theologically they were all messed up. They rejected the idea of angels and demons. The Sadducees rejected most of the Old Testament, everything outside of the Torah, which if you remember are the first five books of the Bible. They rejected the idea of a resurrection. You see this in verse 18 as Mark gives an explanatory note for his likely Gentile readers. He says, And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. Who are the Sadducees? Well, these are the guys who don't believe in resurrection. The Sadducees believe that both body and soul would be destroyed at death. It's important for us to know that as we consider this text today. Because it tells us something about the nature of their interaction with Jesus. Namely, it shows shows us that they're trying to trick Jesus. They're trying to trap Jesus. They're being disingenuous with their question. 
they pose a question to Jesus about a resurrection that they themselves do not even believe in. They ask a question about what's going to happen in the resurrection for those who have been married multiple times, but they don't even believe in the resurrection. They want to get Jesus caught up in the middle of this theological controversy, hoping that he'll give an answer that will cause some of his followers to be disenchanted. So, what is the trap exactly that they're laying for him? Let's reread verses 19 through 23 to make sure that we see it. Verse 19, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Pretty simple, right? A man has a wife. They don't have a child. The man dies. Now the wife is there without a child, without an heir, without anyone to provide for. Okay, verse 20. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. So the brother of the dead husband comes along and says, well, I'll marry you and I'll give you an heir. But then he dies. Well, then another one comes along and says, well, I'll marry you so that you can have an heir. And then he dies, so on and so forth, up until all seven die. Verse 22 says, and the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. This whole thought experiment revolves around something called the Leverite marriage law. It's a, it's a law given to Moses by God in the Old Testament, and it was given to a wife to, to protect her and to help her in many ways. A woman without a husband and without an heir would not be provided for. She would have no means of income, of supporting and sustaining herself. And so this brother-in-law would come along and marry her in order to help her have a chance of having any sort of sustenance in this life. But on top of that, it was also concerned with maintaining the family name. And then thirdly, this law was given so that if the woman had land, she wouldn't lose it. If the husband died and she didn't have a male heir, this land wouldn't go down to anyone. And therefore, the family would lose the land. So God made a provision in his mercy for this woman to somehow bear offspring with this same family name by marrying the brother-in-law. The, excuse me, the brother-in-law. This is the teaching that... Uh, of Moses that the Sadducees bring up to Jesus in today's text to try to trap him. But they turn it into a caricature. You know, they think of the most extreme possible example, you know, hard case law. And then they add resurrection to the mix, all in an attempt to get Jesus to trip over himself. Now, if you don't understand what I just said about the Levite marriage law, and it seems kind of vague and abstract to you and kind of hard to put the pieces together, it's okay. That's, that's not really the point of today's text. That's what the Sadducees are using to try to trick Jesus. But the point of today's text is going to come when we see Jesus respond to the trap that is laid for him. So Jesus responds. In the first part of the answer, he deals with the substance of the question at hand. He dismantles the trap. And then afterwards, he dismantles the ones who laid the trap. The question, says Jesus, is worthless. Notice, Jesus doesn't get into a debate with these Sadducees about the resurrection, whether it's going to happen or whether it's not. He says, it is going to happen. He doesn't even hint that he understands that they're trying to trick him or deceive him. He just goes on talking about the resurrection as if it is a fact. Jesus says that the question about who will be married to who in this resurrected life is silly because in the resurrection there will be no marriage and no given, giving in marriage. Look at verse 25. 
For when they rise from the dead, notice the finality of that language. When they do it, it's going to happen. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Why won't there be any marriage in heaven? I can think of at least four reasons. Reason number one. There will be no marriage in heaven because marriage was a gift given to man by God to communicate something about himself. A gift given to man by God in order to communicate something about himself. When a man and a woman come together in physical and spiritual union, in a very real sense, God's word, which we read earlier, which Jackie read earlier from Ephesians 5, says the two distinct people become one. That's meant to teach us something about God who eternally exists in three persons with one essence. We sinful fallen creatures need all the help we can get in understanding this incomprehensible God. And one of the closest ways we can come to understand the nature of a God who exists in three and is yet one is a vague shadow of a picture of that in marriage where the two become one. But when we get to heaven, we will see God face to face. We will have a deeper and truer understanding of God than ever before. We won't need a picture of what God is like because we will see God as he actually is. There will be no need for illustrations. Reason number two. There will be no marriage in heaven because marriage was a gift given to man by God so that he wouldn't be alone. Right? Genesis chapter 1. God saw that Adam was alone and saw that it wasn't good and he gave him a wife. God loves us, and he doesn't want us to be alone. Why? Because we're created in his image. And the image of the God that we're created in is a triune God. He eternally exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Throughout all of eternity, the Son and the Father and the Spirit have all had the pleasure of each other's company. God wants us to have the pleasure of each other's company. He makes us in his image, and he gives us that covenant company. But when we get to heaven... We will never be alone. The book of Revelation calls it a great multitude of our brothers and sisters that we'll be gathered with. Moreover, we will be with God himself. There will be no need for marriage in heaven because we will never be alone again. Reason number three. There will be no need for marriage in heaven because marriage was a gift given to man by God to picture the relationship between Christ and the church. It was meant to be a picture of the gospel. Again, as Jackie read earlier from Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. That's marriage. The two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ in the church. So what's the purpose of marriage? It's to point to Christ in the church. This human aspect of marriage that God designed for life in this world was never meant to be permanent. It was always meant to point to something greater than itself, something beyond itself. But one day, this world will be made new. There will be no need to picture the gospel anymore because the gospel will have accomplished its end. The shadow will disappear and the real flesh and blood marriage will take its place, which leads to reason number four. There will be no marriage or taking in marriage in heaven because there will only be one marriage marriage of the Lamb. You see, in heaven there will be marriage, but it's just not the way that we think about it. 
we, the body of Jesus Christ, the bride of Christ, will be married to the Lord Jesus Christ. We will be his bride. He will be our groom. Listen to Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Marriage was a creation institution. That means that God designed it to take place here on this earth. But in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be a truer and better marriage that this marriage has always been pointing to. The Sadducees are missing the glory of what marriage really is is because they don't understand the thing that marriage is pointing to. Marriage is pointing to this eternal, resurrected reality which they deny. I think the same can be said of our culture today, which is increasingly denigrating the value of marriage. They undervalue marriage because they don't understand it. If this culture understood marriage in relationship to the gospel, things might be a little different. Divorce wouldn't be so easy and cheap. There wouldn't be so many divorces and remarriages. There wouldn't be a marriage between a man and a man and a woman and a woman, or a man and three women, or a woman and a dog, or a woman and her cactus. All real life examples that I looked up this week on the internet. You cannot understand marriage apart from the gospel. So if the culture in which you live begins to deny the gospel, marriage is going down with it. Another thing that our culture doesn't understand is the spiritual realm. Many of us Christians know less about angels, for example, than we would like to admit. Some of us know more about angels than we should probably know. Things that probably aren't in the Bible that have just been made up. Well, the Sadducees as well do not understand much about the angels. They don't even believe in them. But in this morning's text, Jesus tells us just a little bit about angels. Not a lot, just a little. Jesus tells us that we will be like angels in the resurrection. We will be like angels. What does he mean, we'll be like angels? I don't think Jesus means that we're going to be like little babies with wings sprouting on our backs, rolling around on white, puffy pieces of cloud with a white void behind us. I don't think there's anything in the Bible that leads us to believe that angels have wings. I think the only possible explanation of that is Catholic art. In this morning's text, Jesus tells us that we won't be angels. He tells us that we'll be like angels. We'll be like them how? I think what he means is simply that we won't be concerned with marriage. Angels have never existed in creation. They've never received this creation institution of marriage. So there won't be marriage for angels. So in the same way that angels are not concerned about marriage, Neither will, we, neither will we be when we enter into the glory of the Father in heaven. There's not really much more to say about angels from this passage. This is a tricky passage. It's full of stuff that might distract you and lead you down a path that doesn't really have anything to do with what Jesus is intending to teach you this morning. Don't get caught up in the angels here. Let's keep moving. The Sadducees don't believe in angels. They don't believe in the resurrection. But there will be a resurrection, as Jesus clearly teaches. So the question is, how could these Sadducees, these experts in the Torah, these religious leaders, how can they get it so wrong? How can they get it so wrong? This is a big deal. If you were to sit down and write out life's top three most important questions, 
What happens when you die has got to be up there in the top three. What will happen when we die? Will we face a righteous God who will judge the living and the dead, or will we go into a puffy white void? Or will we just kind of be annihilated? Will our conscience just turn into nothingness? I was at a funeral this Friday where I saw the mother of one of our dear, dear members laid to rest in the earth. Prior to that, I sat with her in the hospital and I read scripture with her and I prayed with her. Sometimes we just sat there. And as much as I was thinking about her and thinking about the members who were there, I couldn't help but thinking about my own life. And I couldn't help but recognize that one day I'm going to be in that same bed. I'm going to be lying there as I die, slowly. Maybe. Maybe the Lord will take me quickly. But either way, the same fate exists for me. Eternity is right around the corner. It's true for you, too. If you're young, you probably don't think much about it. It's hard to see past your nose. But I promise you, eternity is right around the corner for you. The Bible says that your life is a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. It's like a wisp of smoke. What we believe about life after death is supremely important for every single person in this room because every single person in this room is going to die. Do you know that? Do you believe that? You are going to die. You're going to die. What is going to happen when you die? When was the last time that you meditated on your own mortality? I'd encourage you to spend more time around people who are chronically ill, in hospitals, volunteering at the hospice, maybe even just in a cemetery, to not let yourself forget that tomorrow is not promised to you. To not let yourself forget that you are not the exception. There is no exception. Jesus Christ was God in the flesh and he died. The Sadducees were confident, confident that there would be no life after death. But Jesus showed them that they had misplaced their confidence in the interpretation of the scriptures. Their confidence was not grounded in reality. So my question for you, brothers and sisters, is how confident are you? How confident are you that when you die, the God that made you is going to receive you into his presence? How confident are you about what you believe? Is, is this church thing just something that you do to do? Is this something that you do because it's what you've always done? Is this just some social network for you? Do you actually believe the gospel? You can kind of ignore that lack of confidence right now, but one day it's going to become supremely important. And that day is today, even if you don't realize it. What if God reveals his truth to us about these matters. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if the God of the universe 
actually gave us the answers to these most important questions in our lives? Well, friends, I think that he has. I think that's what this is. This is God's word. It doesn't tell us everything we need to know about trigonometry or physics or how to dress. But it tells us the questions to life's, it gives us the answers to life's most important questions. God has graciously revealed these things to us. But we so often ignore this truth, don't we? Even if we're trying to be faithful, it's so easy to ignore it. When we're searching for truth, it's so easy for us to, you know, just pull up Google and find an answer. Ask our friends, ask people that we love and trust. Go anywhere and everywhere except for coming back to God's Word. The great irony of today's encounter with Jesus and the Sadducees is that they claim to have great understanding of the Bible, but they actually have none. Jesus responds to them in verse 24. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the Scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus says that these Sadducees are wrong about the resurrection because they don't know their Bibles. They don't know the Scriptures. Now part of this is because the Sadducees rejected a big chunk of the Bible. They only received the first five books. But what Jesus tells them here is that the part that they even do know, they don't understand. The part that they've basically committed to memory, they haven't committed to understanding. Jesus telling the Sadducees that they don't understand the Scripture is a pretty scandalous thing. That's like telling Tate he doesn't understand sports. That's like telling a Wall Street investment banker that he doesn't understand money and finance. That actually may be true, considering things that have been happening in the last decade. These guys were the Torah experts. But apparently they didn't know as much as they thought and everyone else thought that they did. Now to prove his point to them about their lack of knowledge, Jesus actually quotes from the Torah itself, the, the part of the Bible that they actually receive. He quotes that back to them. He quotes Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. But before we talk about that, I want us to notice <coughs> the precision with which Jesus goes about dismantling the Sadducees' pride. They come to him and they say, Moses wrote to us. And Jesus responds to them by saying, have you not read in the book of Moses? Remember the Mount of Transfiguration that we studied not too long ago? Jesus was standing there talking to Moses. Don't come to Jesus, the one who rescued a people out of Egypt right along with Moses and destroyed them afterwards for unbelief, the one who sits and talks with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, don't talk to Jesus about what Moses said. Jesus knows what Moses said because Jesus is the greater Moses. By responding back with the words of Moses from the Torah, Jesus is taking their gun away from them and shooting them with it. He's shooting them with their own gun. He says, yes, I know what Moses said, but do you? Now, the place that Jesus takes the Sadducees is a strange one. If this weren't a Sunday morning sermon and it were like more of a Bible study, and I would say, okay, guys, here's what we're going to do. Take five, ten minutes. Everyone in this room, find one scripture from the Old Testament where you can prove that resurrection is true. And I said, go. You know, you guys open up your Bibles. I doubt that you would go to the passage on the burning bush. That's not the most immediate passage that comes to mind. Let's turn to Exodus chapter 3 and look at it for ourselves. Kind of save your place in Mark. 
go to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus is the second book in the Bible, right after Genesis. Exodus chapter 3. Here God is graciously revealing himself to Moses. Starting in verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to see... God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Well, there it is. The doctrine of resurrection, clear as day. Let's move on to the next point. No, I'm just kidding. Jesus is making a powerful point here, but it's easy to miss it. So let's break it down a little bit. In this passage, God says, I am. I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. If you remember, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, these are the patriarchs of the faith. These are the men that God met with and, you know, first with Abraham, made a covenant with, and then with his son Isaac and his son Jacob, renewed his covenant with them. But Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, they all died. Well, if the Pharisees are right, then that's it. They're dead. You know, their body's dead and their spirit and their soul is dead. Everything's dead. God would be the God of nothing. He would be the God of nothing, the God of those who are dead. But God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. God speaks to Moses about these men as if he is still their God, as if they still live. Why? Because they do. They still exist. Their souls were not obliterated when their heartbeat stopped and all their cells went through necrosis due to lack of oxygen. They still live. They are alive and they are with God. His promises are everlasting. His covenant is an eternal covenant. To say it another way, the call of God, made by the promise of God, creates a relationship with God that never ends. The call of God, made by the promise of God, creates a relationship with God that never ends. Brothers and sisters, I hope it's not lost on you, the fact that you are an eternal being. I don't mean to say that you've lived forever. I mean to say that you will live forever from here on out. Human beings are created to live forever. Even though we die, our soul lives on. And there's hope for our bodies. The gospel says that the God who made us will raise us up. And if we are in Christ, we will be raised with Christ. We will be given glorified bodies and we will be seated in Christ at the Father's right hand. As we read earlier from Ephesians, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he 
He made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is a sweet comfort and gospel promise for us as Christians. But the reality of the eternality of our souls should give us pause if we are not found in Christ. If we are found outside of Christ in our sins, dead because of our rebellion against God, we will still exist for all of eternity. But our existence will be confined to the outer darkness, shut out from the presence of our glorious God. The Bible tells us that we will be cast into this darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why such a severe punishment? I think the answer is because we have sinned against an eternal God. And this God is eternally holy. And he's eternally righteous and he's eternally good. And because our sins are against an eternal God, the punishment must be eternal as well. The price must be paid in like manner. So what hope is there then for sinful men like us? We can never pay back the eternal debt that we owe God. No human can pay the price for his own sin, and yet only a human can pay the price for human sin. An animal sacrifice will not be sufficient. And that's where Jesus Christ comes into play. The very man that these Sadducees are trying to destroy this morning came to save them. He came as fully man and fully God. As fully man, he lived the life that you and I couldn't live. On any given day, we can't even be a little bit righteous. But he came and he lived a life that was perfectly obedient to the will of the Father. And then he died as man. And he took the wrath of God on the cross on his shoulders. As fully human, he paid the price that only a human could pay for our sins. But as fully God, he's the only one who could have taken the eternal wrath of God. Only an eternal being can exhaust the eternal wrath of God. And Jesus did that on the cross in a way that none of us could. And now he is calling all men everywhere to repent of their sins and to trust in this perfect work that Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Will you trust in him this morning? If you do trust in him this way, you will rise from the grave with bodies incorruptible. Listen to the way the Apostle Paul talks about this. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on the immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? This is the promise that we have as Christians. This is our hope. Death will not have the last word or the last laugh in our lives. I spoke with a man yesterday who told me that he doesn't believe in any of this. Not a lick of it. It's, uh, 
Hogwash. This man is like the Sadducees. The Sadducees didn't believe in it. They didn't believe in it because they didn't understand the Scriptures. Church family, I cannot tell you how important it is for us to make sure that if we want to rightly worship God and understand the Gospel, we have got to understand God's Word. We have got to be students of the Scriptures. You can spend your whole life in church and not understand the Bible. Everyone in this room can recite John 3.16. That doesn't mean that they understand what it means. We can memorize Scripture in Awanas and not understand what God is trying to communicate to us through those Scriptures. As Christians, it's not about just being able to say the words. It's about understanding the words and loving the words and obeying the words. I can share with you example after example from my own life even, but also from people in this very room. People who grew up thinking that they understood something about the Bible, something about God, something about the gospel that was wrong only to have their mind changed when they were confronted by God as he's revealed himself in his word. There's going to be an encounter with a Sadducee next week where it seems like maybe he might have a soft and supple heart to what Jesus has to say in his word. Do you? If you are confronted by God and his word about something, will you receive it? Or will you harden your heart to it? Think about the story of the prodigal son. How many people in this room thought that the prodigal son was always about the rebellious son who takes off? You know, this is God's story about how he calls sinners back to himself, only to find out later that really it was about the self-righteous son who stayed home and thought that he was better than everyone. How many people of us, how many of us, were discipled to ignore the hard or the scary parts of the Bible? Or how many of us exist in an echo chamber where we only hear the thoughts and interpretations of people that we agree with when it comes to the Bible? How easy is it for us to harden our hearts to certain things that confront us and convict us as we read God's Word? Just as the Sadducees' lack of understanding led them into great spiritual danger, so does our lack of understanding. But I don't want to just talk about these problems without offering solutions. So I want to give you, note-takers, four ways that you can better understand the Scriptures. Four ways that you can avoid ending up like a Sadducee. Four ways. Number one, read good books. Read good books. Paul, when he was writing to Timothy, told him, bring the books. Bring the books. Paul, the apostle, read books. Paul was uh, well-studied. The book of Ephesians tells us, as a matter of fact, that God gives good gifts to his church like teachers. And the vast majority of the gifts that you receive from teachers take place on Sunday mornings, just like this. God's word is open in the pulpit, and you hear it preached faithfully. It also happens on, Sunday, uh, on Wednesday nights. It happens Sunday mornings in Sunday school. It can happen in small group Bible studies. But another way that you can receive the benefits of God giving teachers to the church is by reading books that they've written. I doubt any of my sermons will ever, will ever be turned into a book one day, but there are some teachers out there whose sermons have been. And they're so good that God has given that gift to other people outside of that local church. 
we should learn from other teachers, as many teachers as possible. Old teachers, young teachers, dead teachers, living teachers, black teachers, white teachers, rich teachers, poor teachers, all of it. And we can read it, we can learn it through reading good books. Now the key word here is good. Good. For every good book, there's probably 300 other books written by Joyce Meyer that you should stay very far away from. If you ever wonder about what you're reading, just ask one of the elders. We'll give you our honest answer. We'll help you and guide you and lead you. We're not going to try to be the thought police. We're not going to legislate your library, but we will try to encourage you and push you in the right direction. Or just ask another mature brother or sister in Christ if they have any good recommendations for you. You can think about reading trustworthy publishers like Desiring God, Crossway, Nine Marks, Cruciform Press, etc., You can even read solid websites like the Gospel Coalition, other sites along those lines. Read books that will help you better understand God's Word and be a better student of the Scriptures. Number two, live in the Bible. Charles Spurgeon once said that we should visit many good books, but live in the Bible. All the good books in the world will not replace you just spending a lot of time in God's Word. It doesn't even have to be super in-depth. You don't have to have a Vines, you know, concordance there. Just sheer volume will help you to be a, a better student of God's Word. No matter how many good books you have waiting for you on your bookshelf, you should make sure that you live in the Bible. I know it can be difficult. I know that with kids or work responsibilities, health issues, one of the first things that can fall off for us is our time in God's Word. Friends, it should not be so. But it is. And my, my heart right now is not to shame us for our, the way we do it. I do it too. But maybe there's a way we can do better. One of the ways that I have intended to try to help us as a church do better is through the Cultivate emails. Every morning, Monday through Friday, if you've given your email to Jackie, and if you haven't, find Jackie immediately after service and give her your email, You'll receive an email in your inbox. Check your spam. It might be in there like it is in mine, and I can't fix it. Where you'll have a Bible chapter to read that day, and then a short reflection written by me or in the future one of the other elders of the church that will tell you what's going on in that passage, how to understand that chapter. What is God intending to communicate about himself to you through that chapter? It should take you no longer than 15 minutes, and it comes right to your inbox. I'd encourage you to take advantage of that as a means to help you be a better student of God's Word. Number three, read the Bible in community. You were not meant to interpret God's Word alone. God did not save you into a vacuum. He saved you into a family. He saved you into a body. You know, it's not just you and the Holy Spirit in a room with an open Bible. Christians have been thinking about the same things that you're thinking about for 2,000 years. And whenever you read good books, you're entering into that dialogue with them. But whenever you read scripture in context, in the context of community, you're also learning how to read the Bible well. This church is meant to be a safeguard against errant interpretations of scripture. The shepherds of this church lead from the front by teaching God's word faithfully and teaching it faithfully as well. Even if a pastor in this church never sits down with you one-on-one and says, okay, step one, this is how you read the Bible. Step two, this is how you keep reading the Bible. Even if that never happens, and to be honest with you, unless you ask for it, it may not happen. But even if that never happens, 
If you come on a Wednesday night or if you come on a Sunday morning with hearts prepared, ready to learn and to receive God's word, you will learn how to read your Bibles better. You will learn how to be a better student of Scripture. You will walk away with a better understanding of God and, and the gospel. Every time a teacher in this church opens God's word to you, he's not just teaching you the contents of God's word, he's also role modeling for you how to understand God's word, how to read it and interpret it and apply it to yourself. Number four, pray for the spirit to open the eyes of your heart. First Corinthians tells us that spiritual truths must be spiritually discerned. Any non-believer can come and read the Bible and kind of put some pieces together. But that doesn't mean that it will penetrate their heart in any meaningful way. If you want to read and to understand and to accept and to love God's word, God's spirit must do a work in your heart. And that's what God promises us. The book of John tells us that the spirit will lead us into all truth. That's the spirit's job. If the spirit of God is, li is living in you, his job is to lead you into the truth. He uses means like good books and teachers in the church, but he still leads you into the truth. That the Lord delights for his people to know the truth. When you ask God to help you understand his word, he doesn't respond yes begrudgingly. He responds yes delightfully. The more you understand God's truth, the freer you will be from sin and the freer you will be to worship. That is a prayer that God always wants to answer yes to. So pray and ask him to help you better understand the Bible as you read. I've shared with you guys a hundred times about how when I first became a Christian, you know, I was trying to read it, and it wouldn't have mattered if it was upside down or right side up. It wouldn't have mattered if it was in German or Latin or French. I, didn't, I just I couldn't understand any of it. But through time and the work of the Holy Spirit, here we are. So pray with the psalmist as he prays. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me for you are the God of my salvation. If you don't pray this way and ask the Spirit to do a work in your life to help you understand His Word, you may end up like the Sadducees, who not only fail to grasp the truth of God's Word, but because of that, they fail to grasp the power of God. That's the two things that Jesus says the, the Sadducees don't understand, the truth of Scripture and the power of God. And they don't understand the latter because they don't understand the former. So what is this power that they don't understand? Well, simply put, it's the power to raise dead men from the grave. It's the power of resurrection. That's the whole point of what's going on in this text today. Not the angels, not the Leverite marriage laws. It's the power of resurrection, God's power. This is the greatest display of human power that can possibly be imagined. With all of our advances in science and technology, we can do so many things. We can send men to the moon. We can send cameras to the furthest ends of our uh, solar system. We can extend human life by decades. But there's a lot we can't do. We can't figure out why humans yawn. We can't create a cooler that doesn't leak. We can't eradicate malaria. We can't figure out the physics of how a bumblebee flies. We, as a people can create weapons powerful enough to kill every last human being on this planet. But we cannot conjure up the power to raise even one of them back to life. 
that kind of power is forever out of our reach. But this is the power of God. He has the resurrection power. There were glimpses of this power all throughout the Old Testament, but when Jesus came, this power was put on full display. Christ was dead by our count for three days. But by the immeasurable greatness of the power of God, working through the Spirit of God, Christ was raised from the grave and seated in the heavenly places. Were you there when Christ died? Were you present as they nailed him to the tree? Were you there when he rose from the grave? Did you, did you get a chance to see and inspect the empty tomb to make sure? I don't think you were, and neither was I. But that doesn't mean that we can't witness this same resurrecting power. It doesn't mean that we haven't already witnessed it. Every person in this room that now lives in Jesus Christ has been resurrected from the dead. Every single person in this room was once dead in the trespasses and sins in which they once walked. This is what God's word says. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. How, how dead were you? Just as dead as Jesus was. As his cold, lifeless body lie in the grave, he was completely and totally and utterly dead. And that is what your spiritual condition was. You followed the course of this world. You followed the prince of the power of the air. You walked like the rest of sons of disobedience. You carried out the passions of your flesh and the desires of your body and mind. You were not concerned at all about the things of God. You were a rebel against God. And because of that, you deserved the wrath of God. But that's not the end of the story. That's the bad news of the gospel, which makes the good news of the gospel extra sweet. God's word continues, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. He made us alive and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. You have seen the resurrection power if you have been brought to life and if you know anyone else who has been brought back to life in Christ Jesus. Every single Christian is a walking portrait, a walking sermon of the resurrecting power of the God of the universe. And not only are we brought back to spiritual life, but when we die... We will be raised again to be with God forever with a new body. And we will get to be with God and enjoy the pleasure of his company forever. Don't you want that? Don't you yearn for that? I know you do. Even if you don't realize it all the time. Going back to the man that I told you about from yesterday who says he didn't believe in a lick of it. You know, he said that to me as if he was trying to convince himself more than he was trying to convince me. And I think that's because at some level, instinctually, I know that he longs for this. Even if he says in his angry and bitter voice that he doesn't believe it, I know in his heart that he wants it to be true. We were created to be eternal beings and we long for eternity. So lay aside any weight and sin that would hinder you and keep you from this great resurrection promise. 
finally, brothers and sisters, don't wait until you die to try to grab a hold of this resurrection power in your life. This resurrection power is not meant for you to be, is not meant for you to experience it only the second that your, start, your heart stops beating. If you're a Christian, God calls you now to start living in light of the power that he has given you. The same God that raised Christ from the grave, that spirit, it lives in you as a Christian. And it doesn't live in you for no purpose. It lives in you so that you would start living in light of this power right here, right now. The power of God gives you the ability to conquer addiction. The spirit of God with the power of God gives you the ability to put sin to death. It gives you the ability to fight for your marriage. It gives you the ability to chase hard after Christ. Paul says in Romans 6, Just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. We can live a new life. We don't have to be addicted the way that we were. We don't have to give in to sin the way that we used to. We can live a new life. And friends, we must live a new life. If there's no evidence that we are living a new life, a life of power, then there's no evidence that the, the powerful God of the universe is actually living in us. Let's live like Christ has been raised from the dead and like we have been raised with him. You know, the Lord, the Lord Jesus, he utterly decimates his attackers in today's text. Their logic, their understanding of Scripture, their polemical maneuvers, all of it. He just makes them look silly. But the ultimate rebuke to the Sadducees is not what takes place in today's text. It's not the wisdom of Jesus. It's not the light feet of Jesus as he goes rounds with those who are attacking him. It's not even Jesus' exegesis of Scripture. the final and ultimate rebuke to the Sadducees is what is yet to come. The empty tomb. The resurrected body of Jesus Christ is the final rebuke to the Sadducees who did not believe in the resurrection. And it is the final rebuke to everyone who does not understand what is to come. Will it be your final rebuke? all those who know Christ and who love Christ, we say together this morning and forever and always that Jesus is alive. Let's pray. The thing that you call us to believe, Lord, is unbelievable. We do not know this kind of power anywhere else in our lives. And so we pray and we ask that you would help us to fully grasp this reality that your son, Jesus Christ, is risen and that he now lives. And we pray that you would help us to live in light of that reality as a church. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.